Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we believe there's no such thing as secular, and we're not afraid to cry. Okay, your your middle name is Macho, but uh, I'm wondering if you ever cry. You ever, has Macho Man ever cried? Oh, yeah. Really? Uh Uh-huh. It's okay for macho men to show every emotion available right there, you know, because I've cried a thousand times, I'm going to cry some more. That 1992 clip of macho man Randy Savage answering a question from Arsenio Hall on his talk show, it made the internet rounds a couple of weeks ago, igniting another batch of discourse over what it means to be a man. I'm Josh Larson, editor at thinkchristian.net and your host. So there's masculinity, there's toxic masculinity, and there's Christ-like masculinity. What does that last one mean exactly? We'll be considering on this episode with the help of another wrestler from my youth, Jesse the Body Ventura. Ventura starred in 1987's Predator, a macho movie landmark of its time, especially as a vehicle for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Predator led to a number of sequels and spinoffs, including the recent Hulu hit Prey. The interesting premise of Prey? Well, trying to survive against the alien hunter this time around is not a muscle-bound batch of mercenaries, but a woman, a Comanche woman, actually, circa 1719. I'm looking forward to discussing both films, Predator and Prey, with J.R. Forsteros and Abby Olchesi, exploring what these movies might have to say about our concepts of masculinity, Christ-like, and otherwise. A quick reminder before we do that, especially now that Prime Video's The Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power series is underway, we've published a free new ebook consisting of theological reflections on the eight previous screen adaptations of Tolkien's work. So, yeah, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films, of course, but also those animated adaptations by Rankin and Bass and Ralph Bakshi. You can get the ebook for free by signing up to receive TC emails at thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. That's thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. Okay, let's go back to 1987 and into the jungle to talk Predator with J.R. Foresteros and Abby Olchesi. I'm joined by two very, very macho guests today, J.R. Forsteros and Abby Olchesi. Before we dig in, you two, I first want to know this about 1987's Predator. If you had to be one of the American mercenaries who are dropped into the jungle in the film where they encounter this hunter from another planet, which one would you want to be? And you can't pick, you can't pick Arnold Schwarzenegger's Dutch, okay? You can't cheat. You got to go with one, one of his men. JR, you're the most bearded one here. I feel like that means in this context, you should go first. So so who would you pick? I got to choose Jesse the Body Ventura, right? Blaine. He carried why, the chain why gun. Why is that obvious? He carried the chain gun. He was he was by far the most macho. So yeah, I, I loved him. Uh, I was okay. sad. I assume we're spoiling Predator. I was sad yes, he went out. Let's so spoil early. Predator. Maybe not okay. Prey, but yeah, Predator we yeah, can yeah. spoil. All right. So the weaponry, the weaponry swayed you mostly there. How about you, Abby? So I've been thinking about this a little bit. I think in terms of the way I present myself and my my interest in reading comics, I'm probably Shane Black. I would like to be Bill Duke. That would be that would be the uh, the one that I would like the most because I feel like his character has the most uh, emotional arc and is maybe maybe the most interesting. I think of all of the the characters that we're introduced to. Well, that's the choice you get. You get to pick who you want to be here. So yeah, 
It's not who you think you are. He's the aspirational the character. Aspirational. I like it. I also like that you said you've been think you've been thinking about this. So does that mean like <laughs> since watching the movie, you've laid awake wondering who you who you are? Oh my! Could <laughs> no. Since since you asked, I was like, I need to I need to think about this really hard. Okay. I I think who would I really want to be, and I think it's Bill Duke. I like it. I'm gonna copy you, Jr. But it's for different reasons. Jesse the body. He gets the quickest death, speaking of spoilers. And to me, it's the least painful. I feel like it's it's like an alien laser gun or something, right? That pretty much goes through him and it's over. Though I, I will say, I think he's probably maybe one of the most toxic of the group as well. I think he's the one who tosses off that homophobic slur early on. We get the chopper like locker room sequence. He's pretty vile there. So that doesn't really work in his favor. But I do like that his death is fairly, fairly quick and clean and, and he gets out of it compared to what some of the others suffer. So, so Jesse, the body, he kind of, he kind of brings us to this towards this topic of masculinity, but first I want general thoughts on predator. Is this a long beloved title by either of you? How about you, Abby? I actually came to Predator a couple of years ago after years of knowing that I should have seen it by now. In fact, I think I watched it specifically for an article I was writing for the pitch during the pandemic on movies I needed to catch up on. And so, yeah, it was it was right up there with Eve's Bayou, which is a weird, weird double feature, but it's there. I enjoyed it. It's and I, I liked watching it again for the second time and being able to kind of interrogate it a little bit more critically, especially in the eyes of, of Prey, which kind of casts some of those same images in a really interesting, different light. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on Predator and Alien and then, the you know, when they when they blurred the franchises, I rem- I'm sure that the first time I saw it was like on USA on a Saturday afternoon with all of the R-rated stuff edited out. I had a roommate who had, you know, a typical, typical bachelors in our 20s. He had an absurd sound system. And the, when he got it set up, he said anywhere he ever moved, the scene he used to test his setup was the chain gun sequence in Predator. So, of course, we had to have a QE <laughs> to, yeah. Yeah, so when that subwoofer's, bah, 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 yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's working, you know, it's on. And then, yeah, I mean, I've watched it. it it's, one, it's, it's such a rewatchable movie. It's so efficient. It's so quick. And it gets right down to business. And I think it's one of those great movies that subverts the genre while also mm. being the genre. So, okay. I just love it. That's where I want to go. That's what I want to get to. But first, you describe my personal hell in that sound test of the machine gun because it's just endless, the gunning going on in this movie. And yeah, it's, you know, the old the older I get, I'm just like covering my ears more and more waiting for that. Um, I think I called it when I reviewed a deforestation by gunfire to end because it's pretty much constant. So I have long dismissed Predator. I had a conflicted relationship with it as a kid when I saw it. Same with UJR, kind of grew up with it. And I love the idea. This concept was just something that I wanted to see immediately. The alien fascinated me. Stan Winston's creature design is brilliant and absolutely holds up. Again, no shock. So much of it is practical, almost entirely practical, I think. And so that is really to the film's credit. And some of the other things, I think the leanness of the final third, where it's just Arnold versus the Predator, works well in terms of an action movie here. I wasn't even as a kid so much into the muscle flexing and those locker room aspects. That was just, that was just 
just kind of, you know, like, get me out of here. But I did want to give it another chance, especially in light of Prey, as you mentioned, Abby. And because I do know some people read it as what you hinted at, JR, a little bit of a self-aware critique of these manly action movies. So maybe continue with that, JR. Tell me a little bit more about how you see it working as an interrogation of some of these ideas. I think even the setting primes us for that. You have in the 80s, right? This is like the height of the U.S. involvement in Central America, like playing shadow games with the Soviet Empire or you know, Soviet Union, you know, Banana Republic kind of stuff happening. And you have an elite American task force that's set down in the jungle to accomplish a mission that like almost immediately we know has failed. You know, like we know the hostages are dead, like, I don't know, in the first act of the film, you know. So like from the get go, it's already a failed mission, which I think in and of itself is interesting. I mean, you know, you put Stallone obviously up alongside Schwarzenegger and Rocky has a lot of this or not. (laughs) Not Rocky. Sorry. uh, Rambo, the (laughs) other one, uh, has a lot of the same kind of critiques, right, with American military machines seem to have problem in jungles. Right. And then I think the chain gun scene that, that we've just been talking about is for me almost an encapsulation of the critique. They absolutely annihilate this jungle. It is excessive. It is ridiculous. It is to the point that you start laughing because you can't believe how over the top it is. And then just in case you missed it, the camera swings around to where they were shooting. And it it, it is this, like they have created a clearing in the jungle because of all of the shooting that they've done. And it accomplished literally nothing. Absolutely nothing changed. It was the most pointless shock and awe campaign. And I think that's very much what what the film is wanting to say is, you know, we took the largest military in the world. We descended on these jungle countries expecting that just because we were the biggest, baddest show in town, we were going to, of course, win with no problem. And instead, we were made to look like fools over and over and over again. I think the helicopter, the locker room scene, as you talked about it, I think it needed to be that absurd. Because we needed these guys to be super macho, like the the sort of like poster boys of U.S. masculinity, you know. Just to jump in on that, I feel like that for me starts at the very beginning of the movie, obviously, where Schwarzenegger comes in off this chopper and like he's got this big cigar in his mouth and he walks into the room and the first person he sees is Dylan why can't I remember the actor's name? Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. Thank you, Carl Weathers. I kept thinking Carl Lumley, and I was like, no, Carl Lumley's too cool for that. So Arnold gets off the chopper, and he walks into the room, and the first person he sees is Carl Weathers, and they have that kind of weird handshake arm wrestle thing, which is a little <laughs> bit homoerotic and has been gift into affinity. And, like, it's the amount of muscles in that shot is laughable, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the point. Like, this is also John McTiernan, who I, I think Die Hard comes after this, mm-hmm. but in Die Hard gives us um, kind of another subversion of what we would expect a, a big action hero to look and act like, as well as the great dialogue between the two FBI agents about wanting to go into the building like it's Nam and the other guy never having been alive for Nam and making a joke about it. So this is somebody who's, I think, very aware of the absurdity of the situation that he's presenting us with. Yeah, I like how you describe Die Hard as a subversion because that absolutely rings true to me. 
the argument would be, as you guys are both someone making, is more of a spoof in moments. And I guess that's where I still struggled this time around. Even wanting to put on that lens is everything you've said makes sense. I especially um, can resonate with the political element that you're talking about, JR. But it's seeing this ridiculousness on screen and trying to figure out where are they playing and spoofing things and where are they really doubling down on this idea? I do think Schwarzenegger, you know, he's a he's a bright enough performer that he's playing that pretty nimbly and manages to find a way to have it both ways frequently in this movie. I don't know if the movie otherwise entirely does that for me, at least. I was almost wondering if the kill order, if we can be so crude, tells us something because you do notice that Shane Black's Hawkins, who, you know, is the guy who's maybe even more vile than uh, Ventura's character. He's always making jokes about women. Um, he's the first to go, right? And then we do get Ventura's Blaine. So for a while, I'm thinking, oh, this is interesting. Like, is this part of the commentaries? He's the loudest, crudest are going to be taken out first, which would fit in with what you guys are saying. But then the movie does have those sequences like Blaine, after his death, gets this honorary military funeral sequence, which there are very plaintive horns in the background, you know, like a, like a military tune you would hear. And I like that it's honoring a character's death. So many of these action movies don't bother to do that. But at the same time, it seems to be backtracking a little on a little bit about spoofing who these characters are and what they represent. So I see something like that and I see the movie trying to have it both ways. But for sure, you know, a more complicated uh, depiction of masculinity than maybe I first gave it credit for. And I think there's there's also, you, you mentioned this, that there's kind of a tonal shift. There's also, I think, a real sense of loss to the death of some of these characters. You have Arnold's line earlier in the movie where he says that his men are not expendable, which I have to believe is a reason why the movie The Expendables exists years <laughs> later. But right after that, a bunch of his men do die. And some of them have really tragic reactions to that. Like Bill Duke's character completely just decides to get revenge on the creature. And that doesn't end well, but it seems like he's got a little bit more soulfulness to him than a lot of the rest of the guys. When Carl Weathers dies, one of the first things that happens to him is to have his arm, like that huge meaty arm that we saw him do the arm wrestle with at the very beginning of the movie, that gets ripped off. That's like his biggest asset. Interesting. So I think, yeah, there's there's some, I think some questions to be had there. I, I'm not sure that it's consistent necessarily, but I do think it's an interesting case of a filmmaker trying to do a little bit more with the material than may have been there on the page in the first place. Well, I was going to say too, I think, I don't I don't act at all want to take away from the critique you raised, Josh. I think that's a really, really good point. But oh, yeah. I think too, even when you're zooming out a little bit to look more at the political nature of it, like Schwarzenegger has to literally become a guerrilla soldier in order to win, right? Like he cannot win as the American military machine. He has to, you know, build traps in the jungle and hide in the mud and you know, do all of these like covert tactics, which again is what what confounded so many U.S. forces, both in Vietnam and in Central America. I again, I just thought that was interesting too, where it's just it's critiquing this one particular vision of the all American, which which I always just laugh at anyway when it's Schwarzenegger because he's Austrian, sure, you know, <laughs> right, and course. they get around that by calling him Dutch. It's like, okay, <laughs> sure, whatever. Yeah, we're all just gonna roll our eyes and run with it, you know. But like, <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit of uh, critique baked into the casting even there. So. <laughs> This idea of masculinity in the film is more interesting probably than I first gave it credit for. Can we talk about it within the context of Christ-like masculinity, which is something 
entirely different. And to get us there, I wanted to bring up this article I sent to both you guys because I thought it was a very interesting angle on the idea of Christ-like masculinity. It comes from Xiao Chong, who's the editor of The Banner. This is a 2019 editorial. And The Banner is the official magazine of TC's parent denomination, by the way, the Christian Reformed Church in North America. Now, rather than starting with existing traditional gender norms and approaching the question that way, Chong wrote this, is a man who is loving, kind, and joyful, gentle, and peace-loving, faithful and good-hearted, patient and able to control his anger, not a real man. According to social tests, most men would label most of those attributes as more feminine than masculine. But that's a problem because I just listed the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Since the fruit of the Spirit is what God wants and expects all Christ followers, men and women, to exhibit in their lives, it must be how God intends real men to be as well. The problem lies not with the spirit, but with our culture's stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. We have accepted a lie about masculinity for so long, quote, boys will be boys, that we think it is truth. Now, I do see, I do see a lot of boys will be boys in Predator. Chong also talks about the role of violence in this misconception of masculinity. And again, we see a lot a lot of violence in the film. Maybe you guys see some critique of violence there as well. But I do wonder about this idea of Christ-like masculinity, especially as it's framed here by Xiao Chang. Is there any reflection of that in Predator or should we we just quickly move on to Prey? What do you guys think? <laughs> That's a good question. I think if there's any in if there's any thoughts on different forms of masculinity, I, th I think it's mainly there in the critique, and I think that critique gets even further pushed in in Prey in really interesting ways that I am looking forward to speaking to. I also think that maybe if it's in any character, I think it is in Bill Duke's character, and that he's not he's not as built as the other guys. He genuinely seems to have a lot of loyalty toward the people that he works with. I think there's a sense of relationship between those characters in that they have been together for a really long time. There's trust that they've built together over a really long time. Their actions are maybe not always defensible in terms of healthy masculinity. It really seems like, especially near the beginning of the film, that if you were to ask those characters how they feel about each other, they would describe each other in terms of brothers and friends. And I think Bill Duke is interesting. Is there some sort of vulnerability, too, in the fact that he's constantly sweating way more than anybody else? I just kept noticing that. And you know, there's the thing, don't, don't let them see you sweat. And obviously it's kind of beyond his control. But as you were talking, Abby, I was thinking back to his scenes and realizing, yeah, he does seem like the one who's vulnerable. Maybe it is related to the build, as you described as well, more vulnerable than the others. So I don't know if there's something there also. How about you, JR? I keep reaching for Dutch, Schwarzenegger's character, and the way that he immediately tries to care for and protect Anna, even though she's probably informing for her people the way he the way he cares about his men right the, the line you already quoted my men are not expendable i mean there's there's not nothing there right there's a there's a sense of fatherliness or older brotherliness in the positive sense not in the prodigal son story sense there's a sense of generosity and kindness especially towards anna there's a, obviously a sense of self-sacrifice where he's you know, inviting them to get to the chopper while he's going to stay stay behind and face this thing that will likely kill him. I think, as Abby said, most of what we're going to get is how the film is critiquing this notion of masculinity and that, yeah, when, when you make this the sort of pattern 
the best you're gonna get is this like kind of glorified death which isn't actually all that glorious you know it's gonna be a a sad quasi-military funeral in the jungle surrounded by right. people who you work with. There's there's also a humbling aspect to it, I think, a little bit, in that one of one of the things that I love love about the alien movies, and I think also what I like about the Predator movies, is the sense of people who believe they are capable and powerful coming up against a force that is evolutionarily superior to them. It is designed to show them their weaknesses. And I guess that kind of leans into the critique aspect a little bit, but it's also, I think, it's it feels like it's it's not just subtext it is text like there are there are things against which even the strongest physically or mentally which even the strongest of us cannot face down unless we like really double down and work very very hard and not all of us are going to make it out alive yeah yeah just one in this case which yeah. <laughs> you know that humility theme would hit a lot stronger if even dutch went down but you know that's not going to happen no uh, jr i like that you mentioned uh the character of anna too very interesting this guerrilla soldier who they end up taking hostage uh, played by elpidia carrillo and yeah that does add a different emotional wrinkle to what's going on here absolutely all right so let's go from the 1980s uh to the 1710s JR and Abby are going to stick around to talk Prey, the new prequel to Predator, when we come back. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and Hello, your in-house man in black, John J. Thompson here with this episode's specially curated mix. And that, of course, was a little bit of Johnny Cash's A Boy Named Sue, recorded live in front of a room full of prisoners at the San Quentin Prison in California in 1969. That song, one of Cash's most famous hits, was actually written by children's author and humorist Shel Silverstein, who got the idea for the song from his friend Gene Shepard, who talked about being bullied as a kid for having a feminine-sounding name. Silverstein went on to become famous for writing some of my favorite kids' books, like Where the Sidewalk Ends, and Gene Shepard wrote the semi-autobiographical book that the film A Christmas Story was based on. That was him narrating it, too. And one of the prisoners in the audience that day at San Quentin was a young man named Merle Haggard. He credited seeing Cash on stage that day with inspiring him to turn his life around. Now, in your probably normal brain, a conversation about the latest Predator film, which I absolutely loved after hating every second of every previous entry in the franchise, might not immediately cause you to think about Johnny Cash. But that's just how my brain works. As we contemplated the recent film's superior storytelling and its sophisticated way of asking questions about the ways cliched, unhealthy, toxic masculinity leads to destruction, I recalled a brilliant recent editorial Hannah Anderson wrote for Christianity Today entitled The Masculinity Debate Needs Johnny Cash. Anderson artfully and convincingly juxtaposes Cash's flawed but self-aware, confessional, empathic presence as the original Man in Black with John Wayne's imaginary, false, grit-driven embodiment of bravado, individualism, self-reliance, and vengeance from high atop his Hollywood airbrushed institutional horse. If John Wayne was the embodiment of the American ideal we men ascribed to over the last half century or so, Johnny Cash has been more of an honest reflection of what we really are. 
broken, addicted, frail, and yet full of redemptive potential. The world is just waiting for us to be our honest selves. Oh, and we do all look pretty good in black. It was also a fun coincidence that on the very week we decided to tackle this project, one of my favorite artists, the brilliant John Darnielle, and his band Mountain Goats dropped a new full-length album called Bleed Out that is entirely inspired by action movies released between the 60s and 80s. It's a stunningly satisfying collection, though that should come as no surprise to anyone who has followed this band over any of their previous 21 albums. Darnielle has previously chosen subjects like professional wrestling and board games to turn into concept albums and always finds a deeper point for those with ears to hear. On Bleed Out, he taps into the tropes and cliches which he admits that he loves and sees them as seeds that have blossomed in the hearts, minds, gun collections, and socio-political disasters we see unfolding on the news today. It's a fun list this time, by the way. Some of the tunes demonstrate just how messed up our concepts of masculinity and manhood can be. I'm looking at you, village people, and George Thorogood. Some actually wrestle with the process of rethinking these issues, and some show us just how long this complicated topic has been fodder for great art. You can find links in the emails you get from Think Christian, or just search for Think Christian on Spotify, and you'll see it there. You know how this works by now. And if you have something to add, tweet at me, at John J. Thompson, and I'll see what I can do. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you that my favorite spelling of man is S-O-R-R-Y. Peace. Josh Larson here, back with J.R. Forresteros and Abby Olchesi. We're going to talk about one of the real surprises of the summer, for me at least, uh, Prey, the Predator sequel that showed up on Hulu and has come to be regarded by many people, I think, as the best installment in the series. Abby, if you don't mind, can you fill folks in on what Prey is all about? And then maybe tell me if you're as high on it as most people seem to be. For sure. So Prey is, I, I think Dan Trachtenberg has kind of gone on record as saying he doesn't love thinking of it as a prequel, but it does take place several centuries before Predator happens. And it does follow the Predator in a an earlier setting. So in a sense, it is a prequel. And he's also, interestingly, said that it's kind of a response for him to the way that Billy dies in Predator, the uh, indigenous member of Dutch's crew, who has like this great scene on this bridge where it seems like he's going to face down the Predator and he does like the thing where he cuts his chest and you're like, oh man, this is going to be a great big throwdown. And then all, all that happens is that you hear him scream off screen. You never get to see it. So this is, in a sense, I think he's he said that this is kind of his response to that, like the thing that he kind of wishes he would have gotten to have seen more of. So in this particular sense, the hero of the movie is a woman, young Comanche woman named Naru, who's played by Amber Midthunder. And she kind of wants to prove herself as a hunter to the, the people in her tribe, especially her brother and his friends. And while she is out helping them hunt a mountain lion, um, Naru kind of finds evidence that there is a more dangerous creature kind of stalking around in the woods and killing off the local wildlife. That's the predator. So she tries to kind of hunt down the predator herself when her tribesmen do not believe that this is an actual thing. And that in turn brings her into conflict with a group of French trappers who are also kind of trying to hunt in the region, but are also being stalked by the predator. And I think if there's any commentary to be had on the original film, I think it comes in the form of those trappers. There's a lot of imagery mm. that that ends up tying back to the original movie that is stuff that is perpetrated by those characters. And did it all work for you? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. <laughs> um, I think it's it like the first film, it's, it's very lean. It's very direct. I think it understands what works really well about that original formula and it turns a lot of it on its head. You can tell that Dan Trachtenberg is a fan of the original movie, but also has some things that he would like to say about it in a modern context. And he says that I think both in the script and also in the imagery that he uses, which plays on some of the stuff that shows up in the original film. Yeah, Trachtenberg, the director, wrote this with Patrick Ason, and you may have mentioned Bud playing uh, Naru in a really great performance as Amber Mid-Thunder. So Abby's a fan. I'm a fan. How about you, JR? First of all, did either of you watch Legion on FX? I did not. I hear she's great. No. She, that's where I first encountered Amber Mid-Thunder. She is terrific okay. in it, and it was such a delight to watch her in this film. I sure. apparently also, as, as of time we're recording, the sixth episode of the second season of Reservation Dogs just aired and blew up Twitter. And apparently she is a special guest star in it. So I did see that. I have not yeah. gotten to watch it yet, but I, yeah. So Amber Mid Thunder, whoop, whoop, like big fan. <laughs> can't wait to see more work. Top man, talk about a movie star. She absolutely carried this movie, does a terrific job. I thought it was terrific. I thought the... What the choices of when to provide translation for the Comanche and when not to, mm. uh, the choice of not to provide most of the translation for the French because we are following Naru and we're she doesn't know French, so we don't know French. Like all those, all those kinds of choices, I thought were just really smart to aid in the overall sense of the film and the the sense of alienation that she's experiencing. And like Abby said, the the way it is a riff on the original film is just terrific. It does everything a Predator movie should do. It it provides a whole new... I'm sure y'all saw the tweet that was going around. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was like, this is what we want for Predator, right? Show us a samurai movie, drop a Predator in. Show a right. mob movie, <laughs> drop a Predator in. Like, just give us a period piece, add a Predator. Like... <laughs> Which sounds great, right? Yeah. It sounds great, but it's... I think this, when you stop and think about it, you can see how those all could be really terrible if the thoughtfulness and the craft that you've both described are not brought to this. And so from the cinematography, the landscape cinematography here that also immerses us in this, you know, somewhat familiar to those of us in North America today and have been to the Great Plains area, but also very alien landscape is just incredibly used. And Mid Thunder is great. Her watchfulness as a character, you know, who isn't communicating a ton to us through dialogue is key. And I think she manages to hold our attention just with that quality. Yeah, I love this. And you guys have both said lean, I think. It's it's shorter, significantly shorter than Predator. And I found it to be, you know, even more tightly crafted, uh, even the action scenes. And all of this, which is to say, it's still a predator movie. You know, it's there's extreme violence in, in this. There are those kills that I know some audiences are, that's all they're in it for. Those things are here. But the context that is brought to it, I think is what makes it for me, my favorite of the series as well. So, and it's also playing with this idea of masculinity, right? In ways we've already touched on. Um, I don't know, again, if we can, what we can bring from this movie towards the idea of Christ-like masculinity. It's its more, you know, commenting in like a single shot, that one overhead shot I love of her, of Naru walking in the opposite direction of women, going out to hunt and gather, or going out to gather, and she wants to hunt. And so they, they just visualize that in a nice, 
throwaway shot of her going in the opposite direction. But how about this idea of Christ-like masculinity? Can we get there here, if not in Naru, maybe some other character? Did you see anything along those lines in Prey, JR? I've been thinking about this a lot since, since I knew this is what this episode was going to be about. And I think where I, where I keep landing is on really how both of these movies more explicitly pray, warn about what's actually so dangerous about toxic masculinity. One of the things, I guess I should say. And that article that you mentioned, I thought he did a great job of outlining the sort of boy code that we traditionally ascribe to, where boys are supposed to be tough and taciturn and, you know, take the fire to them and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to say that tough, taciturn people are by default wrong, right? Like, sure. I think if... I think you can be emotionally healthy and still be tough and taciturn. But uh, I think what, what can happen when we say this is the only thing that a man can look like and just define that relatively narrowly is that all of these men who are not that end up, end up having to deny who God created us to be in order to try to be who we think God made us to be. So it, it traps us in this doom loop because we are trying to live into something aspirationally for the very, again, trying to give the benefit of the doubt here for the very best reasons, because we think this is what a godly man is or whatever. And then what we're actually doing is denying the image of God in us. And so I think I I was going to try to make a real clever metaphor about invisibility and not being able to see it and things like that, but I I couldn't quite land that. So (laughs) pretend I did something really clever there and go, Ooh, yeah, really insightful. Uh, But you know what I mean? Like, that's it. And I think, I think that like, that's what I saw with Naru where it was, because because she was excluded, because she didn't fit in, she had to rely on these things that she was more naturally gifted. And you mentioned her observational nature. And I've seen several reviewers talk about her almost scientific mind of looking and learning. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when she develops the, the leash for her ax that, that that actually ends up saving her life at one point and, and some stuff like that. Like we enjoy those things and we marvel at those things. And I don't know that, if she had been a male character who had just been part of the hunting party, there would have been space for that kind of exploration. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe as, as you're describing it, it is simply in the casting and it's breaking down these prescriptive ideas we have and realizing that Christ-like masculinity is not limited to that. She, I would say Naru could be described as tough and taciturn, you know, for a, for a lot of, in a lot of the scenes, and it's just, as you said, JR, that's not necessarily, those are not necessarily negative qualities. And in fact, we see how they can be positive qualities in a different character used in different ways. How about you, Abby? Are, are you able, you know, the Predator has this, which I think is still a huge cheat in all these movies, that the Predator can go invisible. Um, I mean, he should just get out of here with that. And and that's, that's, a, that's a cheat. But do you think you can make that work, Abby? Oh, JR, you, you like the invisibility? I just want to speak to that just, just for a moment. Uh, Because I had the same reaction as you, actually. This has nothing to do with masculinity. But (laughs) I kept thinking, I kept thinking to myself, right? This is so unfair. Yeah. But then I remember this is a hunter, right? And what do do human hunters do? Put on camouflage, use the deer scent. Like, it's not Mm. a, I'm going to walk up to the deer and slap it with my glove and challenge it to a duel, right? (laughs) This is a, I am going to... I'm going to camouflage myself, trick the wildlife, hide myself so that I can strike. So you're saying hunters are cheating, JR. Now now you're really causing some trouble. 
I'm saying the predator is not doing anything that we do not do. I agree. So. <laughs> I agree. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, Abby, can you make the invisibility thing work that JR was going for here with oh, Christ-like masculinity? I don't know, because eventually the predator has to be defeated. So I think in in the sense of, of unfairness, I feel like it's extra unfair in this particular instance because the predator not only can turn invisible, but the predator has access to all of like almost all the same technology that so it, it technology. has in yeah. the 87 movie. Wow. Uh, and meanwhile, the most technology that you get here are French hunters with single load rifles that take forever to reload. That which scene just, yeah. was amazing. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, and when one of the hunters is is telling Naru how to use the gun and he's like, you know, explaining how all the different parts work, I just thought, if I'm her, I would not be listening. I have arrows. Those take seconds. But yet she's able, yet she's able to like watch and absorb all that and yeah, figure it yeah. out, you which, know, which good is, is kind of cool. But I think there is a little bit of a contrast in between the two groups of men that she interacts with, one of which is the the group of of hunters from her own tribe, one of whom is her brother, who comes to, I think, starts out the movie having a certain amount of respect for her ability, but kind of hedging it a little bit. And by the end of the film, does respect her, I think, fully as a as a person um, and has the ability, has that ability to change and to understand that she's capable of doing more. The other group that we get are the French trappers who see her only as an object and who are also way more destructive to the land than Naru and her people are. I think it's really interesting that and I didn't even realize this until I watched the the eighty seven movie last night that there are there are two in each of those movies, for lack of a better term, flayed body scenes. <laughs> um, the one that's in the first movie is when we see the the crashed helicopter and all of those dead bodies in the trees that has been done by the predator, and we know it's been done by the predator. In Prey, we see all, like a whole field of bison that that's been done to. And we think it's yes. the predator because the previous movie taught us that that was what to expect. But it turns out it's not them. It's the French hunters. And the French hunters are also the ones smoking cigars and chomping on them the way that Dutch does in the first movie. So mm. in both cases, we have imagery that is kind of being turned on its head and making us dislike these like white colonialist intruders even more than we were already maybe predisposed to. I think it's it's very clear that if there is a group of men that we are to side with, it's it's not these guys. It's it's the Comanche people. Yeah, that's that's good. And I that scene with the the bison and the buffalo stood out to me as well when I was thinking about this. It also helped me to go back to those qualities that Xiao Chang uh, mentioned in that banner article about fruit of the spirit. You know, because even as a hunter, Naru, and this speaks to what you were just saying, Abby, has a way more gentle and peace loving spirit towards nature, towards her environment, and even in a way towards the animals that she ends up killing. And I think we see that. We see her horror when she comes across that field of bison because she it's not necessarily that they've been killed, but it's the waste and the disrespect for what they have to offer. And, um, you know, she's hunting for sustenance, as are the others, the other men you're talking about. And the French traders are doing something different. They're taking spoils, essentially, and then spoiling what's what's behind. So I think at the very least, she she lives within nature with a more loving presence in a way than those predator mercenaries, again, who are just mowing the forest down, as, as you described. 
so well, JR. So thank you both for, you know, stretching ourselves a little bit with this, this notion, but also I think having some fun just thinking about both of these movies. I really appreciate your time. I know you guys are both busy. Abby, you've contributed to uh, our Lord of the Rings ebook. You wrote an essay for that. And again, folks can get that at thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. JR, you've got a post at thinkchristian.net about Netflix's Sandman adaptation, which will be up by the time this episode airs. So yeah, what else have you guys been working on beyond those things? Any Anything else you want to plug, JR? Oh, I thought we were going to talk to Abby and I was so excited to hear. <laughs> I've written a couple times about Nope, once at Tor, once at Sojourners. And yeah, that's, that's kind of it for now. I'm r- still riding high off seeing Bodies, 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 but I haven't written anything about it. So. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. I saw your Sojourners piece on Nope and really appreciated it. So Thank yeah, you. That, that's a good one. How about you, Abby? I have also written a piece on Nope, not for Sojourners, but for uh, Paste magazine. That's kind of a a post-watch explainer. So I would recommend watching the movie before reading that piece. I also recently wrote a piece for Sojourners that is up on the website now, kind of breaking down the themes of forgiveness and self-forgiveness in Fielder's The Rehearsal. Mm, yes, that should be fascinating. I'll look forward to to checking that out. And yeah, so much can be said about Nope. It's kind of endless. So mm-hmm. lots of good stuff on that Jordan Peele film. Thanks again to the both of you. Take care. We'll be in touch soon for more articles, more podcasts. We'll talk to you again down the road, okay? Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Changing water to wine. Devastating schematics Rough drafts of the 23rd song Paul Kersey never left his apartment John Rambo never went to Vietnam So how's this for perfect timing? Just as we were planning this episode on Predator and masculinity, John J. Thompson alerted me to the new Mountain Goats album, Bleed Out which riffs on the tropes of 80s action cinema. So that's a bit of their song, First Blood, there, which obviously references the Sylvester Stallone-John Rambo film from 1982. The movie's actually pretty good and has some interesting things to say about masculinity, believe it or not. Before we go, I wanted to share one more thing from that Banner article on Christ-like masculinity by editor Xiao Chong. I think this helps put the whole masculinity thing in perspective. Chong wrote, Jesus did not seem to fit easily into either his ancient cultures or our modern culture's boy-slash-man code of honor. Instead of shaping our boys according to our culture's boy code, we should be diligently shaping them according to the fruit of the Spirit, which we know from Scripture is God's will for us. That is our spiritual goal, to be Christ-like men and women. Thanks to J.R. Forsteros and Abiel Chessie for joining me to have some fun talking Predator and Prey. You can find J.R. on Twitter at J.R. Forsteros and Abby is at Abby Olchesi. We're on Twitter too, of course, as well as Facebook. You can find us at Think Christian. On our next episode, we're going to be digging into that Lord of the Rings ebook that I've been talking about. And we'll also discuss the first handful of episodes of Prime Video's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. So get your copy of the ebook for free over at thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. That's thinkchristian.net slash Lord of the Rings. I can't wait to have Claude Acho and Sarah Welch Larson on with me to nerd out about all things Tolkien. 
For those of you who might not know this, we put video versions of the podcast up on YouTube as well as other video content. So just search for Think Christian on YouTube to find that. If you are watching us there right now, well, then you missed out on a couple of tracks from the Spotify playlist that John J. Thompson selected for this episode under the theme of masculinity. To check that out, search for the Think Christian playlist over on Spotify. One more quick thing, we could use some fresh reviews of the show over at Apple Podcasts. So if you can take just 30 seconds or so, give us a star rating, maybe even leave a comment or two, that would really help raise our profile so we can find some new listeners. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more info. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassler. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.